for us. And we come to you with all our needs and wants. Christ to die for us is at the right hand of the Father now interceding for us. In all your glory, you you stand in sympathy as we groan inwardly. We with the first fruits of the Spirit feeling the, the discomfort, the whole world of twists out of joint. And we come to you. Father, we, we, we pray for the needs of, of this congregation, these people, these families. Lord, every father here bears your name. Glorify it in them, Lord. Lord Jesus, every husband here stands to that woman as you do to us. Make him like yourself. Nourish these families. Oh, Father, we give thanks for this week, the birth of Eden, Odessa Craft. For the, the safety of your Rachel, for the enrichment of Wallace and Nora, Blake, uh, we give you thanks. Uh, with them, the shining in their eyes, and all of these families who pray, provide, bless the endeavors, the work, the business. The earning and the doing. Give wisdom, instruction, correction that these households would thrive and that being like you, working in the created world, they would have more and they would show your goodness and that they would give abundance beyond their four walls. Lord, we pray that you would Bless us in our weaknesses. We, we are mindful of Ray, who is dear to Charlie and so to us, and ask that you would strengthen and enable him and provide good care for him. Lord, we, we, we pray for our, our dear brother Michael Coley, that he would, Lord, that you would um, give him vigor they can continue on with the kind of, of work and industry that really delights him. And we pray that you would encourage him. We thank you for his example to us, his display to us. Faith. Lord, we, we do thank you for carrying this congregation forward. We thank you for gathering in these brothers and sisters. And this we ask that you would you would use this congregation, these bound together with vows for peace and purity, 
that by our shared faith we would make your son's name heard. That by our being here and your being with us, Holy Spirit, that you would bring the kind of disturbance, the kind of pressing that we will read about in your word today. Here we are, Father. We give you thanks. We ask that you provide. We would glorify your Son. We pray in your name. Amen. Um, pick up uh, a Bible. The, the Pew Bible's uh, within reach. We're going to turn to the first chapter of Luke, actually it's page 1017 in that pew Bible. Um, Chapter 1, verses 57 to 80. This is the Gospel according to Luke. The Word of God for the world. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath they swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that 
we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Follow with me. Who can speak of your son? Oh, we thank you that you revealed him and revealed yourself in him and for your word. We, we are such beneficiaries. We have such a legacy. There is so much. Your word, your word in English, we literally... Oh, but, but work in our hearts that we would hear. Illumine this word, Lord. We pray in your son. Amen. <coughs> Let the government hear. Let the church listen. And you, hearing and listening today, you must repeat these things. The incarnate Son is God's decisive victory, and in Jesus Christ, God's fidelity is fulfilled. <laughs> the government, the church, and you, yes, this is about the full scope of our society and the living center points in each of your lives. The eternal son became a baby. He became a man. He became the king. In the language of our catechism, quote, subduing us to himself, ruling, defending us, and restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Let the government hear. Let the church listen. And you must repeat these things. The incarnate son is God's decisive victory. And in Jesus Christ, God's fidelity is fulfilled. It may sound foolhardy to preach Christ and speak of the government. And few topics are so regularly mishandled in Christ's name on the left, on the right, way out back. What is government? It is the arrangements of power and custom which are used to direct and limit social activity particularly the bodies and officers that wield authority. And those authorities must hear. The incarnate Son is God's decisive victory, and in Jesus Christ, God's fidelity is fulfilled. We are justly thankful for we the people. However, there is always both a real compliance by the people under authority and also a real influence by the people on authority. Look at the book of Acts. The state persecutes at the instigation of private persons, civic organizations, and business interests. 
So by the government, I also mean the Kiwanis Club and Greenpeace, uh, big tech companies and Walmart, your homeowner associations, your neighbors. We the people must hear the incarnate Son is God's decisive victory. And in Jesus Christ, God's fidelity is fulfilled. Zechariah and Elizabeth and their neighbors and relations live in a small town, in a small nation, absorbed into the Roman Empire, under the boot of the Roman army. In John 6, when the crowds were impressed with Jesus, they wanted to make him king. After the resurrection, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Those would be obvious but wrong conclusions from Zechariah's words. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David to save us from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. And the Romans might not notice this Jewish song in the hill country of Judea, but Luke publishes it for the eyes and ears and the gossip of the empire's aspiring elite. It isn't January 6th or the repeated Antifa riots in Seattle, but it is the kind of written evidence being quoted to explain those things, whether justly or slanderously. Very much in public, Luke is saying, let the government hear the incarnate Son is God's decisive victory and in Jesus Christ, God's fidelity is fulfilled. Why do I call on the capital C church to listen? Just like the Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire and huddled together in Palestine in the first century, the people who name Christ in our society are a mess. Especially those with the evangelical banner. The church should not be an amorphous, doctrinally vague and discordant group best recognized from the questions on a survey from the Barna Research Group. The Church of the New Testament, the Church of Christ's victory is adorned with sound teaching, wholesome sacraments, faithful pastoral care. So many of those who name Christ around us are not so adorned. Adorned, they are very poorly dressed for coming rough weather. Some are just plain naked, struggling to cover their vulnerability with politics and psychology and religious mumbo-jumbo. They name Christ. We must love him and seek him. Let the church listen. The incarnate Son is God's decisive victory. And in Jesus Christ, God's fidelity is fulfilled. And you must repeat these things. These are fundamental to your faith in Christ. In fact, these are the entire strength of your faith. You must repeat them in your prayers, as you talk over your meals, to your children, to your friends. The incarnate Son is your victory and your everything. 
This repetition is how you share in his strength. This repetition is how you share out his strength. When you or she or some stranger is overwhelmed, the incarnate son is God's decisive victory. In Jesus Christ, God's fidelity is fulfilled. The story, told in verses 67 to 66, is primarily about surprise. A joyful surprise becomes a peculiar turn, becomes an astonishing declaration, and the surprise gives birth to awe and wide-eyed wondering. Elizabeth concealed her pregnancy as long as she could. Suddenly the neighbors and relations learn that this barren, all-her-life-old woman has birthed a baby. Wow! That is almost like Abraham. When it comes time to name the baby, she defies custom for no apparent reason. John was a common name, and not the name of a great Old Testament figure. It was not a family name. It was a nobody's name. Why does she throw aside custom and decorum and wisdom? And, and why in such an odd way? Their surprise turns electric when they turn to Zechariah. He was struck dumb and deaf in the temple when the birth of his son was promised. When he came out of the holy place, everyone knew that he had just received some sort of vision. He was vainly gesturing, trying to express himself. Now, the neighbor's gesture. Luke uses basically the same word. They gesture to get his reaction to his wife's strange insistence. And this grave and pious old man, the man who has never spoken a word of his vision, no old woman, overturned with excitement, he writes, John. What on earth? And then this old man, silent for nearly a year with so much to say. What does he do with his hands now? He bursts forth, full of God's spirit. The crowd of relatives and neighbors haven't heard his voice in all that time. But now, mostly he sounds like a hundred different kinds of birds from all over the forest of the Old Testament scriptures. They recognize these quotes, these allusions. The old man erupts with joy, decked out in the most royal phrases of enemies overcome and Israel exalted by God's powerful deliverance. But Luke holds back the song for a moment. Before he gives us the rapture and the shout of victory, he brings the mounting surprise of that gaggle of country folk to a ripe and lingering awe. They passed on the story to all the people they knew, and it produced a general and persisting disturbance. It is reverence with a simple name, fear, like standing at the edge of a mighty roaring waterfall without a guardrail, or standing upwind on a hill at a safe distance as a forest fire runs forward like a herd of sprinting Antelope overtaking and engulfing the ridge across the way. It's not the fear of being threatened. It is the profound recognition 
of vast and present power. Let the government hear. The incarnate Son is God's decisive victory. And in Jesus Christ, God's fidelity is fulfilled. There's a power at hand, rustling our fragility, pressing on the days to come with a purpose that no man can thwart. Everyone for miles around is riveted by the story with a sense of immense expectation. And what will that little boy John do? How can he prepare for that? How can he bring the dawn from on high? What sort of trigger or first step would he be? John will be the sign that this great victory is God's fidelity. It is no mere cosmic wonder, not even a gift treasured for its great worth. It is God's salvation for sinners. The promise that has been forfeited, forfeited, forfeited time and again. John will call the people to repentance, to forgiveness, to stand as the sinners for whom God gave his promises. Let the church listen. The incarnate Son is God's decisive victory. In Jesus Christ, God's fidelity is fulfilled. Zechariah's song carries these two main themes. The fidelity of God and the victory of the incarnation. Make no mistake, the baby Jesus in utero was the great victory. He still must grow into a man, live a life of days and nights, come to his cross, die and rise. Those are the victory-taking territory. But the victory is the God-man himself come to save sinners. Most astoundingly, this victory is fidelity. God knowing our sin and God coming to rescue us. Zechariah extols God's fidelity with four words. Prophets, mercy, covenant, and oath. The prophets didn't just speak divine words. They gave promises of return and restoration to Israel dragged off into exile. The prophets addressed a stiff-necked nation and promised a new home and a feast and children and a future. God raised up this horn of salvation, this baby in the womb, quote, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. He saw the father's failure and their guilt, the same shamefulness that we hold, and he promised this mercy. The incarnation is that mercy prepared long ago, the shame and guilt of our fathers and of Zechariah and of ourselves today. These promises and that mercy were not impulsive or occasional. They were God upholding the covenant he made with Abraham. The Mosaic covenant in all its glory became a debacle. But it was built on God's covenant with Abraham. God's mercy is settled and secured. Abraham's faith would bless the entire world. The sinfulness of his people would not overturn it. God swore an oath. No matter how vast and festering the sin and rebellion of his people, God obligated himself. His own glory and the salvation of his people, he has made inseparable. Let the church listen. 
The incarnate Son is God's decisive victory, and in Jesus Christ, God's fidelity is fulfilled. The incarnation does not erect a salvation machine that you must learn how to operate correctly. The baby did not bring to you an unlimited number of second chances to do better, to get your act together, to become good enough slowly, but get there. He is the fullness of God's fidelity. He is the full mercy promise, the full mercy you need. There is no Jesus and, no Jesus when I, and no Jesus if I. You are called to worship the eternal Son who became a new man. Because everything about the old man is worn out and at odds with loving God. You only need the incarnate Christ through his words, his sacraments, his people. You don't need to be faithful enough. The incarnate Son is God's decisive victory in Jesus Christ. God's fidelity is fulfilled. And and let's be clear. Zechariah is talking about a baby. Not his newly born John, but the still in utero Jesus of Nazareth. This upper word praise is the announcement of fulfillment, but it is oddly the announcement of a secret. The neighbors and relations have no idea about Young's Mary still to be born son. And, and Mary has spent three months as a house guest in Zechariah's home. But how much did that poorly communicating old priest understand? Truth be told, this victory was publicly announced for 30 years and remained largely a secret. Jesus taught hour upon hour. He did miracle upon miracle. He ate meal after meal. He sang the Psalms in the synagogue, Sabbath after Sabbath. He was an ever open secret and God's sights of victory from day one. He had much to do, much to prove, much to suffer. But he did it all as the Savior. He was not one working to become the Savior. He was the Savior, the victory of God. So so finally, let me tell you about this victory. Who is he? And what has he accomplished? Who is he? He is the Lord God of Israel. He is the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable one in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is the one who is high and lifted up And he has visited us. He's entered the virgin's womb. This is not the visit of the vacation or just pleased to be with you. Throughout the Old Testament, God visited his people to pursue their future, their sinful confusion, and the next turn towards his promise. He visited us by becoming a man, and he has ever and always since dwelled with us as a man. Zechariah says he has redeemed his people. This is the language of the Exodus from Egypt. He heard our groans in slavery and exerted his mighty power to set us free. That's the baby in the womb. Jesus is an Israelite 
free from sin's tyranny, and no pharaoh or wilderness or temptation will keep him from the promised land. The Father sent him. The Holy Spirit overshadowed the virgin's womb. The Son joined himself to a rational soul and a biological body. God raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The babe is not just innocent. He is an aggressive power, driving off both his and our enemies. He's not just a protecting shield. He is our victory. When God delivered David from all his enemies and from the treachery of King Saul, he called to God in Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Jesus is the son of David, great David's greater son. David spoke of him in Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David held on tight to God's promises. And he knew that they would come to fulfillment in a descendant, in his house, in a baby. So Psalm 32 ends thus. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. That is who this baby is. What does this baby accomplish? Jesus did not simply come to accomplish salvation as relief today and comfort along the way and a wonderful forever for you and your dear ones. His salvation brings the kingdom of God his enemies are clothed with shame, and his crown shines. The babe accomplishes two things. He defeats your enemies, and he sets you free to serve the living God forever. In the in incarnation, the powers of sin and flesh and death are thrown back on their heels. The baby was not done, but he has clearly won. Long before his crucifixion, Jesus spoke truthfully and authoritatively. To person after person, he said, your sins are forgiven. He did not say will be forgiven. Long before his resurrection, men and women of all sorts trusted in him and received him as the Savior sent. Now, long after his resurrection, we neither worship, nor pray to, nor trust in the gospel. Our Savior, our God, is the incarnate Son as he is held out to us in the gospel. It is not that we are set free, rather that he has set us free by coming to us. We do not worship the truth. We worship today the one who is faithful and true. The Son of God, who back then loved us and gave himself for us. 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the incarnation, the earthly powers of persecution are called out and warned. His people are the apple of God's eye. It is true. That baby still had much to suffer. God's people still have much to suffer. They may skin and dice this apple, but there is no question. The martyrs will be avenged. Those who lose family and wealth and home and all comforts, you will have them all back a hundredfold from God himself. When earthly powers seize hold of Christ's people, they must hear. They are grappling with the robe of the mighty Christ, who is God's decisive victory. Sometimes, in fact, he does save his persecutors. But never will he leave them untouched. He delivers us from his and our enemies. The second in accomplishment of the Incarnation is in verses 74 and 75. That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That deliverance brings us into God's service, which is the language of worship. Delivered from the ruling power of sin and the flesh, we can live in real holiness and righteousness. We can be faithful and loving towards God and man. Really. Repentance is one of the gifts that come with faith in Christ. Because faith in Christ receives all that Christ has. We are fearless because we know that God will not cast us into exile. That our sins of yesterday, tomorrow, Let's not talk about the day that, that, that our sins will not bring us into slavery under sin or even any human power. God's people were driven away from the temple, from Jerusalem to Babylon. The temple was burned and toppled to the ground. Ezekiel gives a vision of God's visible glory departing from the temple. Over and over in the New Testament, the church, you, are called the temple of God. Repeatedly, we are told that faith in Christ gives us bold access to God's very presence. This is what you have in Christ. You will not be turned away because of your sins. You are not held at a distance until you clean yourself up enough. As inseparable as the eternal Son is from the man, Jesus Christ, you cannot be separated from God's welcome and the worship of His glory. Let the government hear. Let the church listen. And you hearing and listening today, you must repeat these things. The incarnate Son is God's decisive victory. And in Jesus Christ, God's fidelity is fulfilled. 
let the government hear. The incarnate Christ rules in the hearts of men. He does not practice compulsion. You need compulsion to enforce law. He does not settle for restraining human injustice. That is why you have the police. He leads people in God's way. That the rising of the dawn enables people to get up and move forward. Let the church listen. The eternal son became a man because God has resolved to forgive sin and undo all its consequences. It required his life of human obedience. It required his bodily death. It required his personal submission to our human responsibility before God. He is calling you to himself. He is today the son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Salvation is not far away in the past. It's not a thing to be finished Jesus Christ is the same today, oh, yesterday, and forever. He is the victory. He is the Savior. And you must repeat these things. We don't repeat these things simply because they are true. They are true. It makes them worthy of repetition. We, we don't repeat these things only because they are wondrous, but, and they, they, they are. You must repeat these things because they are an astonishing surprise. You are like those country folk. What? Not the state? Is God really going to save wicked people like me? The eternal son really became a man just like you. It is beyond belief, beyond imagination. Frankly, we slip back towards unbelief over and over. The fundamental temptation we have is not first atheism or sensuality. Our main temptation is to act like the sun has not come. Act like this burden and, and, and this entanglement is where I must begin. You need to repeat these things. The people around you need you to repeat these things. The world needs to hear this. The incarnate Son is God's decisive victory. And in Jesus Christ, God's fidelity is fulfilled. Pray with me. Lord, glorify your Son in our hearts, in our minds. Make him impressive by your work with us. 